This podcast was made possible by our Leadership Circle members, Senior Fellows Randy Pond and Lisa Sonsini, Class Matchers Greg Avis, Ned Barnhold, Ann DeBusk, Madeline Fackler, Chuck Getchke, Karen King, Judy Koch, Sing Kung, Dottie Hayes, George Marcus, Susan Orr, C.S. Park, and Steve Smith. And a special thanks to ALF Classes 31 and 24 for their tremendous support of American Leadership Forum's 30th Anniversary Campaign. Welcome to The Dialogue. I'm Suzanne St. John Crane. In 2015, American Leadership Forum Silicon Valley launched the Urban Innovation Network, bringing together diverse senior leaders and a fellows program to address the revitalization of downtown San Jose and its surrounding neighborhoods. A conversation emerged around easy urbanism, equity, and access when it comes to the city's permitting process. Today, we're speaking with four members of the Urbanism Network who moved through the dialogue into action. Blage Zalalich, San Jose's downtown manager, Ryan Sebastian, principal of Movable Feast, Damone Carter, program manager at the School of Arts and Culture, and Jim Reber, executive director of San Jose Parks Foundation, share how through the ALF experience, a fast track event permitting solution emerged, increasing access and activation of public spaces in San Jose. Let's listen. Thank the four of you for joining me today. I'm really excited about shining a spotlight on this project that came out of our Urbanism Network, and you know, the four of you were very uh, pivotal in making making that happen and doing the work, uh, the heavy lifting. Let's let's start though by really talking about this concept of easy urbanism and what that means and how you know the city of San Jose started to talk about that and and embrace that. Blagay, could you uh, kick it off and enlighten us a bit on what that term means and how it was inspired here? It was a concept or an idea that came back to San Jose out of a trip that a group of folks, both public and private sector, took to Detroit about a year and a half ago or so. And the the person who was formerly our head of planning, building, and code enforcement, Harry Freitas, actually was on that trip with a number of private sector event producers. And they were able to take a look at some similar kind of cutting the red tape type processes that they were going through in Detroit. And in Detroit, they actually called them pink zones, where there were locations throughout the city where basically the city was getting out of the way and allowing the private sector to come in and do public space activation or or a variety of activations and a very kind of low barrier to entry with respect to city permits and costs and timing. And Ryan, you were on that trip. Damone, you were as well. What what sort of examples of that did you see that were, were exciting? Yeah, we were surprised. I mean, I, I haven't been to Detroit before. This idea of pink zones is, it's red tape, but it's not as red, so the, the tape is pink. Right. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that we, we, we noticed in Detroit was that there was a lot of programming in parks. There were things that were happening all the time with a city that, in terms of population, wasn't very much, I mean, it's, I think, a smaller city population-wise in San Jose. And uh, yet there was concerts in the park, there was food trucks, there were lots of different things, and not just in one park, there were other locations too. And so I think one of the things we've been trying to determine is, as a person that produces lots of events in San Jose, sometimes you, you bang your head against the wall wondering, like, why is this so difficult to do a very simple thing? And you realize sometimes they're just kind of accidents of the, how complex the rules in the books are. And so we, when, we were, when we went to Detroit, we saw these things happening, and we saw that the planning department and other folks at City Hall there were 
we're trying to allow these things to happen instead of trying to prevent them. And that was eye-opening for us. How about you, Jamal? What did you say? It was interesting because I think the, the impetus for Detroit's move towards pink zones and easy urbanism had a lot to do with the city going bankrupt. And so there was definitely a, a sense um, amongst the, the city staff there that they almost had no choice but to get out of the way. Yeah. And so in that space um, of lack of regulation and bureaucracy, because we went to some places that, you know, Harry Freitas and some of his folks were like twitching at the amount of, you know, things that wouldn't fly back home. In that space, folks had come in and, and done some incredible work. And it goes to show that, you know, some, sometimes rules are in place for a great reason to, to avoid people getting hurt. You know, but, but sometimes, you know, maybe we're just being a little risk averse. Maybe we're being, you know, we're telling ourselves an old story about what public activation is. And so I think the Detroit trip for me was eye-opening in the sense that, you know, they do stuff and nobody dies. It's, it's fine. Jim, you've been working in this space a long time, uh, now at the San Jose Parks Foundation, but certainly been in San Jose a long time and, and, and hosted and produced and facilitated many different kinds of events. I mean, which you have this institutional knowledge. Describe just what you've seen and how you see this evolution occurring now. Is well, it? it's very interesting. In 1990, Damon was three years old, I was uh, <laughs> working in the Office of Cultural Affairs and I produced, uh, to date, the largest festival that's been produced in San Jose. It was called the New World Festival. And it was two weeks, 209 performances. It included the first jazz festival. It included all kinds of activities, uh, multi-ethnic, uh, multicultural. It was really something. And at that time, when you wanted to do an event, you had 12 different places you had to go to. And the big innovation there was to put it all in one room. So you started doing events. And I didn't do events in parks. Initially, I, I did them in the public spaces under the Office of Cultural Affairs. But they created a process by which you would go in and sit down, and the fire department would be there, and the police department would be there, and the health department long before your event. And they still use this. So my institutional knowledge is of that being this great innovation. Then over the years, I, produ I produced the Walk for AIDS for seven years. I've done over 200 events in San Jose. And what, when this conversation began with Damon and I, he was saying how he got screwed doing an event because they gave him a grant and it cost him three quarters of the grant just to meet the criteria. And I said, gee, that's funny, when I walk in, there's like a red carpet and I get great treatment and that's because I've been around a long time and the whole genesis of this is how can a guy like Damone get the treatment I got because the only reason I get it is experience but there are other substitutes for experience and that could be what are some qualifiers and that's kind of how we came up with the idea is the old guy who knows the system from the beginning to the end and benefits from it. And really, I've gone to those meetings where they last 10 minutes, and I've got, seen those meetings before me that lasted an hour. Part of the thing that happens when you've done a lot of events is you walk in there and everybody goes, well, he knows what he's doing. Don't mess with him. And, you know, here, sign this. Boom, you're done. Right. So that was the genesis of the idea was us talking about how, because I want the demons of the world to be able to go in there and get the treatment that I do. Right. And it's all about relationships, and, yep. right? And, yeah. you know, we focus a lot on relationships at ALF. Certainly, it's really core to our, our process in, in having dialogues and informing classes. Is, God, if we, if we know each other, <laughs> we really have a relationship with each other, we can sit down and talk about the tough stuff, and we can work this out and get this done. We have a common language. 
So let's talk about the it. Let's talk about this, uh, this uh, fast track events permitting process. You told us sort of how it started. Can you talk about how relationships helped pave a way for uh, this process and this conversation to go smoother? I think, um, you know, with any relationship, communication, right, is the key. And I think that what we found when uh, this conversation started happening between Jim and Damone, uh, and then they, you know, brought it kind of into the ALF, um, into the ALF class. We started talking about it more. A lot of this just stemmed from not miscommunication, but not good communication. And so I think um, part of what we've learned through this process is that it's really important for the city uh, to improve at, on its communication at every step of the way. And I think, like for instance. Um, the process that Damone was going through that was kind of a, a tougher process than, than it needed to be was a new process that the Parks Department was a new grant program that the Parks Department was doing versus the kind of standard event process that the Office of Cultural Affairs um, manages and oversees. And so having the Parks Department and the Office of Cultural Affairs talk a little bit more and be in better communication about what uh, the similarities and differences in their processes probably would have made it easier for the event producer initially. And I think that that's part of what they learned now. So OCA, Office of Cultural Affairs, um, under the, the direction of Tammy Turnipseed, who's been great in this whole process, uh, really was able to sit down with Damone and Jim and Ryan and kind of talk through what OCA actually did have in place. Um, and some of those things I think were, were new, uh, uh, were new information to, to all three of them. And then she was able to kind of talk through really what the crux of the issue was and get to a place where the cost for an event, if you just wanted a very simple event, um, you know, with less than 500 people and no alcohol and one food booth or, or one cooking booth didn't need to be, you know, a permit for $300. Um, it could be a permit, and where it eventually got down to was half of that cost for $150. And to invite those new players into the into exactly. that space, right? Exactly. To a, a culture of innovation. And let, let me just add one thing here. Yeah. Tammy Turnipseed and I have known each other for a long time. Mm -hmm. I think I met her when I was on the ConViz Bureau board, when there was a ConViz Bureau. So we had an offline conversation as this started. She called me one day and she said, um, am I in trouble with you guys? And I said, no, 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 here's what we're doing. And she just made it happen after that. But there was that offline, knowing she could call me and say, you know, uh, why is this happening? And, and uh, you know, and I realized as we went on, OCA is already there. It's Parks and Rec that hadn't dealt with this, they're not geared towards making cultural events happen, whereas OCA is. Ryan, you are, I would suggest, one of the kind of quasi-newcomers, right, to this space, although you've been around a few years and done some pretty awesome events here. How did your ALF experience and just being in the room with, um, you know, cross-sector leaders, folks from the city, allow you to kind of open up about your challenges and then be able to have a, you know, approach these folks with a uh, with this with this concern and say how do we how do we move through this and make it easier for me to do business pre ALF days you know the way we approached regulatory agencies the way we think <laughs> about them is that uh, you know we dismiss their validity and kind of just try to engineer solutions around them I'll give an example one of the things that we do is movable feasts which is gatherings of food trucks we do this from 
South San Francisco down to Gilroy, and people notice that we have red buckets, and uh, that people, we use five gallon red buckets, or pails as the technical term, and people sit on these things upside down, the, the, the pails, they don't sit upside down, the pails are upside down, they sit, sit on them. And uh, one of the reasons why we didn't have those is because we had a meeting with Office of Cultural Affairs, they said you can't put any chairs down, otherwise it's an event. So they said food trucks in a parking lot's not an event, but if you put one chair down, that's an event. Uh. So they said, well, let's go get some buckets, these are not <clears throat> chairs, this is not an event, I don't need a permit. And so this is kind of the genesis of our business. So the beginning, from the beginning, I think we've had an oppositional, oppositional relationship to these types of groups. After going to ALF and sitting in rooms with people that are on the other side in, in that sense, right. it helped us to understand that we need to approach this differently, especially if we're gonna grow our business from small scale stuff to larger scale things, especially things that are not just necessarily what we consider an event, but things that are occurring on a regular basis that create public life, vitality to our you know central city neighborhoods, whatever we wanna call these things. It, it just requires a different level of co collaboration. So for us, we've now taken on different things like the Taylor Street Night Market, which requires a huge amount of permitting and time and collaboration, but is on a whole different scale from food trucks in a parking lot. Right. And a much more engaging and I think much more beloved by the community. I'm remembering back to the Knight Foundation's report called Soul of the Community. I don't know if you guys read that or mm -hmm. remember that, but you know, one of the top things that brings people people to a community, to a city to live, work and play are the are the uh, the social offerings, right? I remember that was pretty high on the list. So we you know, with all these high rises going in and these apartment complexes, luxury apartments and condos and uh, the, the new population we anticipate here, there's certainly got to be room for more of those cultural events. Vlogi, I want to go back to kind of the culture that exists at the city or existed and, and is an evolution. Um, I interviewed Dr. Robbie Pearls, the CEO of Kaiser Permanente, just recently uh, retired and is, is off doing his book tour now. But it's really interesting because he talked a little bit about the culture that exists at hospitals, right? That it's just something that's embedded. And he started talking about uh, uh, the fact that doctors know that they're supposed to wash their hands when they go from one room to, room to another, but they don't. Mm -hmm. And the number one cause of death in hospitals is infection. And it's like, how can they just not do that? What Are they above that that sort of rule? Do they forget? what? It's like this institutional kind of culture that exists. And I think that example is relevant in different institutions and in different circles. So how have you seen the evolution while you've been at the city and certainly with the Downtown Association a long time, how have you seen um, the culture change? And do you think it's changing for the better through conversations like this? Yeah, I think it's certainly changing for the better in the sense that it's evolving out of really necessity. I mean, I was at the Downtown Association for a long time and right kind of on the other side in the private sector. And so having only been at the city for a little bit over a year, I mean, it's it's really kind of amazing when you come, quote unquote, to the other side. You don't really grasp like everything that's going on inside of that building and kind of all the intric intricacies and inner workings until you're actually in it. 
right? And so I think a couple of things. One, I think um, just by the nature of the folks that are kind of moving through the ranks in the city or in, in decision-making positions and also coming in from whether it's the private sector, there's, there's been an influx of, of folks from the private sector and from other cities. Kind of the mentality is changing. I mean, the, the, the city has, you know, hundreds of open positions that they're trying to fill rapidly because of a number of factors over the last number of years that have, have contributed to that. And so with kind of the new blood, um, both from the private sector, from other cities, kind of young folks coming in, having just graduated from college and or grad school, like you just see a, a kind of a shift in the way that people are thinking. And so that naturally infuses a new way of thinking when people sit down to the table to address an, a, an issue. I think the other part of it too is, um, the city is really now more and more, you know, while we're certainly not anywhere near, uh, you know, the financial state of Detroit or some other cities um, that have fallen on, on hard times, just by virtue of the fact that you really need a lot of things to be public-private partnerships and that the city is good at doing certain things and, and a city is equipped at kind of core services. But some of these things that we're, we're talking about are a little are not necessarily core services. They're a little bit more of like the need to have or we want to have as a society. And so I think this this realization that a ton of other cities around the country and around the world are doing innovative things. We are the capital of Silicon Valley and the, and the capital of innovation. And so we in turn also need to innovate and not just talk about innovating, but actually do it. The public sector can't do it alone. And it really needs to be a public private partnership. And what does it take to engage and make sure that our private sector partners are indeed a partner, whether that's with human resources or financial resources. And what that takes is a public sector partner that's willing to be innovative and is willing to, to move more quickly and is willing to adapt and adjust to, to kind of the necessary situation. So I think the combination of all of those things um, has helped the city to kind of evolve and continue to evolve specifically with respect to this easy urbanism, but with respect to a lot of other things too that are going on. It's interesting you bring up kind of the cross-sector leadership and the folks that are coming in from different sectors at the city uh, and the different perspectives that can bring. I think I think you're right on on that. I mean, certainly that's a big dialogue happening in leadership organizations like ours and, and uh, the Presidio Institute and places like that. How do we get people outside of their silos when they go into leadership positions and understand? Uh, there's another way, or there could be another way, right, to solve a problem and, and engage a community. I, th I think one of the things I see is, you know, an attitude, and I, I can just tell you that, you know, the, the, the form that you fill out to do an event is 17 pages, okay? Wow. You may only need to fill out three of them, but if you're the new guy and they hand you the 17 pages, the first thing you do is just go in a room and cry for a while and think, what, why? I wanna be a grown up, but this is too hard. Whereas if somebody handed it to you and said, look, you only have to do this, this, and this. So when I get 17 pages, I'm seeing three, but it's quite intimidating. So the idea that somebody could fast track by saying, incidentally, this is all you need to do. So that you feel welcome, you feel encouraged, and you, and, and you feel like you're able to do what you wanna do. But this is kind of an interesting intervention in terms of, of ALF and the Knight Foundation's influence in convening a conversation with folks who would normally be in the room, you know, um, 
the odd couple, me and here, uh, me and Jim here, we have uh, <laughs> yeah, we, uh, the whole context for us. Totally, talking we only know each other because of ALF. Because of because of ALF, and so I think it's it's important to understand that while you know culture's changing, the city's more of a cruise ship than a motorboat. It takes a while to turn around. Um, the reason kind of we got some traction with this is because of it essentially an old boys network, but I just happen to know one of the old boys. Yeah. So, you know, you know, all credit to to ALF for for convening a conversation with different voices in the room. Uh, the Knight Foundation trip was crucial in just seeing city planners discomfort <laughs> with certain things and kind of starting to understand their perspective a little bit on, on why some of these things are so hard. It kind of gave me like, oh, because they're thinking about CEQA every two minutes, you know. This, this is why nobody has CEQA except yeah. for California. Yeah, and so <laughs> and so it makes it like, oh, I could see what you guys is some of your some of your pain points in terms of that. Now, now with that being said, you know we're talking about a new city, high rise condos, folks coming in, wanting to attract new young talent, which is great. I, I I love it, but at the same time, we we have to be careful that in this conversation about creative placemaking and what kind of events and things we're doing that we're not you know uh, glossing over a broad swath of people who have been here for a long time and honestly from a curatorial standpoint of culture have been on the margins and so that's part of my work is to say yeah we've, we've got some things done here we've kind of cut some of the red tape but um, you know there's still a lot of work to do in terms of changing minds and and biases in terms of what is safe what constitutes safe the safety question as a person as a representative of the hip-hop community doing events here since the 90s when I wasn't three. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's been difficult and you come against some hard and fast biases about what's safe and what isn't. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and so you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with some of the progress, but at the same time, um, you know, when you look at the New Yorks, the Miamis, the Philadelphias of the world, uh, San Jose has a, has a ways to go. In the 18 years that I was at the association, no matter what event we produce, whether it's a farmer's market, <laughs> there was always kind of a push me, pull you conversation around safety. And I think the one thing that everybody can, wanted to agree on and did agree on is that we wanted it to be a safe event. Mm -hmm. It's just that everybody has a different threshold uh, and, and a different picture of what safety looks like and what you need to get there and that's where I think there's there has been a lot of conversation and a lot of progress um, and I think Jim can attest to that but to Damone's point where it's going to be it's a constant conversation and it's a constant um, uh, kind of work in progress. I was going to add I think that's why this easy urbanism or pink zone conversation is so key because it, it kind of brings up a lot of these fault lines right San Jose is an immigrant town it is at its mm -hmm. core an immigrant town a lot of us know through experience that a lot of restaurants are run by immigrants to eat, to put tables and chairs outside of your door is an incredibly difficult bureaucratic process that takes a lot of time and so and we have to ask ourselves I think most people in San Jose probably like sidewalk, sidewalk cafes I don't know I haven't heard anyone tell me they hate sidewalk cafes and they're against people eating out in the public because it's somehow not a good it's not good moral character or something <laughs> and we have to figure out how are we going to get people that have been in the country for five years to be able to come in 
be part of the economic system and be able to grow their you know family and, and, and have navigate opportunities the for business together and navigate for the business absolutely mm-hmm. and I think that's the conclusion out of Detroit was that the reality is unless you have a general contractor an attorney an engineer on speed dial it's gonna be very hard to navigate some of these uh, these uh, standards for opening a business I think that there are and will continue to always be challenges in opening up a business in kind of any any state or any bureaucracy right and there are some places that are easier than others for a variety of different reasons and I do think that San Jose has a ways to go but San Jose has actually made a lot of progress and I think that that's that's part of like what we also need to, to kind of change our the way we talk about it so San Jose has a small business ally program there are two people that are helping a couple hundred business small businesses a year one is Vietnamese speaking the other is Spanish speaking and they've done that purposefully because of the things that Ryan just mentioned and those folks are literally um, walking uh, small businesses through the process and helping them navigate on a daily basis we need to just kind of recognize those things. To make the point out of the easy urbanism conversation uh, came this idea of the, the sidewalk cafes and they should be easier to, to put up and establish. Already the planning department has reduced their fees to zero for a sidewalk cafe. So they've gone from 1,200 um, to now 500. And hopefully by the end of this year, what they're gonna be doing is the folks, those small business allies and the folks in planning are gonna be doing the fire and the public works review on ones that are very simple. So hopefully their costs will be zero. It's only those that will need fire and public works review where they probably will have, um, still have a small fee, but that's because fire and public works are cost recovery. What we're responsible for doing is making sure that we are talking accurately of how far we have moved forward, right? What resources and are what resources available? are there? Because I think that people are looking to us, right? We're we're leaders, right? And when we say something, people believe us. A lot of times, the information just simply isn't known and isn't out there from folks. That yeah, 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 yeah. The communication, and the communication, the communication part. part. And, and let me let me just say, I, I've produced <clears throat> an event in every single facility that San Jose has. Part of what I, I bring to the table is I was Damone. I was the outsider. I was the, mm-hmm. the kid who didn't know and I had to learn. And then over time you just learn like when somebody talks about an event, I know if you have alcohol at the event, you're going to need police. Mm-hmm. And you're going to need more police the more alcohol you have. So when I do family events, there's no alcohol. I just do that. That's an automatic for me. But you wouldn't necessarily know that. But those are some of the key things that that you just learn along the way. And so my, my arc is that early on I wanted to reduce costs and make things easier. And then uh, and then along the way I built up this trust relationship with people so that I've known right. Tammy forever. Right. Yeah. Makes right. it easier. Damone, it feels like, you know, the door is opening. Sure. It's gotten a little sure. bit easier to walk through. It's going to bring more innovative cultural events to San Jose. To, to Blaga's point, I, I think there's a, a responsibility on both sides to not um, – maybe tell a legacy story that this is the way it's always been like this so I feel like part of my work is going to to folks um, on on my end of things people who want to produce cultural events is to say you can't just cop out and say it's hard and the city's not going to let us do anything 
Because I'm like, ah, that's not as true as it as it once was. But at the same time, I, I think, um, again, a, a, a huge bureaucracy like the city, um, it just takes a long time to, to weed out old ideas, biases. And from a community standpoint, we look and we see that you know, when Apple wants to set up a store, you know, things magically start happening at a very rapid rate. Things move for people with means. And so that can't be left off the table in terms of perception. You know, it's my responsibility to say it's not as hard as it was before, but it's also my responsibility when I sit in other rooms to go, yes, I know it's better than it's been, but let's not kid ourselves about, you know, how things get moved in this town. And so if, if we're really talking about equity, if we're talking about that conversation, then we have to be a little bit comfortable with saying that better is not good enough. So there's still places to go. There, there's still, yeah, there's still places to go. But for absolutely. me, I say the door is, is a little bit more open. My organization, Future Arts Now, was invited to be a part of a, this city dance event that's going to be happening. Ten years ago, that doesn't happen. I can just say definitively. You see an opportunity for this sort of a process of you know how we got from hitting our head against the wall, as Ryan said, to hey, we've got a solution and there's this fast track event permitting process now. We're going to make it easier. Can we replicate that in different systems of the city? Every day, folks are trying to to figure out how to do that. Having opportunities for conversation like ALF just help to bring those conversations, identify those areas, and bring them to the forefront. Um, I don't think we're going to hit, you know, 100% um, on every single one, but I think that we are going to be able to make a good chunk of progress as long as we keep kind of the lines of communication open and um, open minds about uh, approaching things differently and, and really speak true to the, the title of, you know, capital of innovation. The number one reason why things don't change in a bureaucracy, why we don't do it differently, is because we've never done it this way before. If that's the reason why we don't change, then we are dead. What we've seen here is the last couple of years, and, and through this ALF conversation, we've been able to break down some of that. Yay for disruption. <laughs> <laughs> Progress. <laughs> ALF is passionately committed to building diverse networks of leaders focused on personal and community transformation in order to create an inclusive and thriving Silicon Valley. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please visit us online at alfsv.org.